I don't know. I personally, I, I felt like the, actually what I really realized was um, not having so many informal social occasions where you're just talking to your friends or colleagues or people you just meet about various ideas. Like I didn't realize how important that was for writing because often when you're writing, you just think, oh, I just need time and quiet and that's it. And then in fact, like all of those little conversations that you would normally be having like spontaneously because that doesn't really happen so much. I've really noticed that it's like, oh, okay, you're <laughs> you're in a room now alone, <laughs> just having to type things. It's, it hasn't. It's yeah. It wasn't. Um, it, yeah, I I noticed the impact of that um, negatively on writing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think there's this idea, of course, that writing is self-imposed quarantine, right? So the writing process is already a quarantine process but when it's been imposed externally and everyone is in quarantine it's not like everyone is suddenly a writer in fact the conditions for writing became very difficult i felt uh, precisely because quarantine had become the norm not the kind of writerly kind of exception to reality and i think um who is it the spanish author juan goitisola has this great book called uh, quarantine which is a kind of meditation on writing as as quarantine uh which is kind of kind of expresses this quite well yeah it's an awesome it's an awesome book yeah indeed but martin you did a, a kind of quarantine within the quarantine no to finish the book ah uh, yeah so yeah i had to just you know rent a room in the Basque country and back home and and just work you know for a couple of weeks just full on um which was quite intense and interesting experience while well, uh, simultaneously i had a uh, uh, horrible sciatic pain but so i was taking a lot of painkillers so the whole thing was a bit uh, hallucinogenic to some extent yeah anyway are you are you all there yes yeah. yes yeah. okay 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 great and i was a bit scared with this And the, and the text that um, you send us, um, cite as procedure as interaction, did you write it uh, before the whole quarantine or during the quarantine? Before. I think we finished in November or something, or at least our draft. Yes, I think it was, it was written relatively quickly in the end, I think, around October or so last year. We managed to cram it in alongside a lot of other... I mean, it's always a crazy time of year, that time just before the winter period. I think we both had a bunch of deadlines, including this article. So it's actually the form of the article you can see. I'm incredibly terse and concise in this article, and part of that was just... You know, the reality of the situation, um, trying to get that in on deadline. Yeah, but it uh, presents a series of extremely relevant propositions for a moment in which uh, worlding or possible worlds is like one of the most interesting questions that we can pose. I mean, after a catastrophic um, 
forecast about what we should expect in terms of uh, global warming, climate change, uh, <laughs> the whole pandemic, public health crisis started. So uh, for the first time, I would say since 2008 and the uh, financial crash, we perceive this, yeah, this kind of atmosphere about, well, the thing that basically you pose at the end of the text, no? How to become witness to a world that is not yet concrete, because we we feel now, at least I feel it, that the world might change and we have to experience a world that it's, it's not concrete yet. I don't know. Did you think about this, about the how the whole scenario is changing so fast after you wrote this text about basically world building, no? I mean, perhaps we should give a quick introduction to the context for the article, which is a book called Construction mm -hmm. Site for Possible Worlds, which um, has its origin in a, in a kind of uh, seminar or workshop at California Institute of Arts, which was already uh, maybe a couple of years ago. I, don't, I can't remember the exact date now. Was that 2018 maybe even? Yeah. I'm not sure, Patricia, if you know. Yeah, I would say. I mean, it's. It, I don't recall the exact because every they have a research group, and each year they have a kind of thematic. Um, so yeah, it would be 2018-ish. I would say, yeah. Yeah. So so it began with this uh, kind of seminar, which um, Amanda Beach, Nico Wilkins, and I think Daniel Tassilotto and others uh, participated uh, on the question of possible worlds. So going back a couple of years now, and. Um, This book is the outcome of elaborations that began or were seeded at that site. And in this book, which Urbanomica put together, so Robin Mackey's the editor, um, along with Amanda Beach, um, they've invited additionally um, other theorists, writers, and practitioners from a few different fields to add to that kind of core group of uh, Uh, and philosophers that met originally in theorists. Um, so in the book, um, there are contributions from um, artists as well as um, writers, philosophers, and thinkers. And so that's the kind of context in which we were asked to write the article. Um, and I would say, you know, I think our contribution is unique in so far as our backgrounds. So... Um, on my on my side, I have computational background. Obviously, Patricia is coming from art and theory, and um, so we wanted to kind of run with with that rather than try to uh, cloak our contribution as a purely uh, uh, kind of philosophical, uh, you know, contribution grounded in analytical philosophy exclusively. Um, that's how I felt about how we were approaching this article. I don't know if Trisha is going to add. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's that, that sums it up really well. I think also um, we had been, we've obviously known each other for a little bit and uh, had like expressed some, you know, uh, 
more off the cuff remarks about oh we should write something together to bring together uh, the let's say our various capacities um, and this just seemed like a perfect opportunity to uh, to kind of do that at least partial synthesis I guess we kept the article in our two voices so it's not a complete synthesis that's the next step right <laughs> um, but uh, at these kind of complementary domains to look at, at where they at, at, yeah, where they where they intersect basically, um, and I, I found the process um, personally very enriching just because I think uh, it's um, the, the the sort of theoretical framework around computation is one requires you know uh, decades or at least years of study to be proficient, uh, and if, if you don't have a mathematical background, it's incredibly intimidating, even if you do have a kind of innate curiosity towards it. So uh, I felt very uh, grateful to work with you on it, Anil, because you're really good at also um, bringing a lot of these concepts uh, into really digestible form. Um, so I actually learned an immense amount from it and actually have to say, I mean, I'm not sure if this is a compliment or if I should hate you for it, but I realized this whole summer I've been working on the perceptibility problem of the possible other world within the existing world so <laughs> it's both good and, and, and a curse <laughs> right yeah yeah one thing oh, please go please go no yeah we should we should emphasize this it's rather an experimental form as patricia was saying we haven't really tried this before there are two voices in it and the interplay of the voices varies uh, continuously from um, dialogical uh, counterpoint even at times, um, uh, dialectical and then just parallel elaboration of ideas that stem from these kind of common propositions which structure the text. So. I think Robin called it a philosophical projectile, and I think that's actually quite a good description uh, of, of what we're doing. We're, we're, in a sense, we're, um, it is a little disruptive, uh, the text. It's, uh, I like this image of kind of tossing a gas canister into a, into a kind of, uh, you know, into a room or something and just smoking out all, all the things you want to um, avoid or uh, uh, all kind of uh, things you're acting against um, but that was that was Robin's uh, description which I thought was quite apt what I'm very impressed with is the kind of mm, well futuristic tone or the or at least the hope you know how you bring some hope to you know the potential of building a future which is something you don't see often certainly these days um, and you know, I, I guess following our last uh, podcast, we we had um, conversation with Kirsten Steckenmeyer and Anna Teixeira Pinto. We ended up a bit debating on the issues around the universal, and you know, kind of and reason and something that I, I well, I've, I guess I wanted to ask you is like how. Do you respond to the criticisms that often you find, certainly in the art world, you know, you know, to notions around universalism that you know are part of a 
you know, frame of mind that is part of the problem which kind of continues with the line of colonialism and so on. So, because uh, here is a very, you know, it's, it's, it's like trying to use the potential, not of only on reason, but of computational, but also exploration of what the universal is uh, for the possibility of building a future. Yes, I mean, um, maybe I could say a couple of things about universals uh, as a topic. It arises towards the end of our essay. I was actually very influenced by an early Sellers uh, essay um, called Concepts as Involving Laws and Impossible Without Them, which is quite a well-known early piece, piece of work from, from Sellers, um, which centers on the idea of the possible and his emerging rationalist treatment of the modal and here he talks about universals and he um you know he says western philosophy has an inadequate or uncritical relationship uh, to assertions of the universal and he really emphasizes how um, to tease out or to better uh, render this concept of universal you have to refer to particulars and the differentiation of universals is uh, always a reference to uh, particularities um, in, in Sellers's view there and I think we try and uh, develop that idea a little bit uh, within this kind of more computationalist lens. I think the other essay that was very influential for me was Badu and his treatment of transcendentals uh, in Logic of Worlds. That's the other body of work that I think informs our treatment of universals here. I don't know, Patricia, if you want to add I think I think that's true because I think you also have to be a little bit like almost... Um, one has to be very kind of historically specific when one speaks of universals because when speaking of like a, a sort of a claim uh, that was made in the name of a universal that in fact was n was not like um, uh, was simply not universal, right? Because I think those critiques are are pointedly at like let's say the Enlightenment uh, um, in action or the the Enlightenment version of of a universal which is similar to what Anil was saying, it, it begins uh, from the top down. Um, so it's also a question of like, yeah, starting from starting from the bottom up as a way to construct a universal rather than it having like as a given, so to speak. Um, and I think that uh, this is where in the essay, um, the, the sort of terms of embedding and encoding start to kind of come in um, but definitely I could say like I think obviously these these critiques of the historical um, uh, abuse of the term universalism are, are, are of course completely necessary and accurate but I don't think that is uh, I don't think that contaminates absolutely uh, the possibility of the universal as such, um, and just in terms of of uh, you know when you said about the, the text is if, if I if I understood if I recall correctly you said something like optimistic or, or hopeful at least, um, and I think that's like kind of I've been reflecting on that a lot lately um, is the almost kind of 
I don't know, almost like ethical requirement of, of theory today if uh, to try to work through some angles of, of constructing hope because it's, it's actually very easy to uh, do, um, to do theory in a, in a very uh, uh, dystopian way, right? Because you just have to map exactly what's before you along a linear timeline. And, and of course, it's, it's horrible. So there's absolutely no creativity in, in doing that. Um, and so I don't, I don't, obviously that's like more of a personal thing, but it's definitely something that sticks with me <laughs> and, and uh, requires a kind of motive, uh, I guess, trying to think in a slightly discontinuous way. Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. And I agree. It is indeed an ethical requirement. But uh, at the same time, it's so bleak to see how all these rational narratives are uh, failing uh, in face or facing movements like, for example, in this particular moment with COVID-19, negationism, conspiracy theory, and a lot of reactionary movements based particularly in a quite dystopian uh, approach towards the current scenario, no? So... Um, well, that's like, this is an interesting thing because in our essay we're kind of resolutely rationalist, right? So even our treatment of the universal is, you know, around ideas of logical and material invariance. And I think, you know, what Patricia said around uh, our emphasis on construction is absolutely critical here. How do you, con how do you show invariances? You first of all have to um, show identities between entities hold. You have to do the work um, uh, to show that this structure is like that structure, that these structures have these things in common, diverge in these ways. And um, that leads you into this constructive enterprise of looking at how you can um, transform things, right? How you transform structures and um, how you preserve uh, certain structures during those transformations and uh, consciously change other structures, right? Because um, this, this, this rashness insistence on working through um, transformations that uh, take structure into account and are structuralist to their core is a way of being conscious about uh, structure-preserving transformations and um, disruptions, shall we say, or ruptures, and how to be conscious about what needs to change um, and what uh, what we want to maintain during any given transformation. Um, so we're very much sticking to a very rationalist perspective throughout, and I think even in light of, say, the contemporary political situation, um, we I think what we, we don't have enough uh, 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 rationalism in in our treatment of, uh, say, um, um, ecological uh, disaster. So I would say uh, there's an insufficient uh, level of deliberation, of course, which populism always engenders this kind of uh, uh, shortcut route to uh, consensus, whereby it, it bypasses any notion of democratic deliberation. Um, but at the same time, the, the, the rational is not um, 
not identical to uh, the democratic in this sense. It's not about um, uh, representation at the uh, in the last instance. Um, I think there's something else going on in our insistence on a rational politics and of the construction of universals, which um, in a sense sidesteps uh, uh, some ideas that come from, from our kind of democratic notions. Um, and there, there's also a lot of danger because you can slip into a rationalist technocratic uh, rebuttal of right-wing populism, which is actually a fairly... Um, fairly uh, effective one at times, if you look at the way in which technocratic discourses developed since COVID um, uh, hit us. Um, it can be very convincing that we need a more technocratic approach and a less democratic one, right? If you look empirically at the responses around the world. So obviously RSA doesn't deal with all these political dimensions, um, but I think it's, a, it's pointing towards um, uh, uh, rationalist modes, some of which might get you into uh, uneasy relationships. There's going to be uneasy bedfellows along the way if you're coming from a liberal democratic standpoint. Mm. Hey, could you please expand yeah. on, you know, what are you thinking about, the, what would be these uneasy bedfellows? This is, uh, I think, very interesting and important to uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, would, I would love to know. Well, I mean, there's obvious examples, right? We're in the middle of a, of a pandemic. Um, if you put experts in charge, uh, say health and economic experts in charge of governance, um, lots of people are making an argument that you'll end up with a better recovery if you just kind of uh, magically, you magic away partisan politics, right? Uh, or even populist politics. Um, so there's very obvious uh, appeals that are made uh, even by theorists, uh, and I don't necessarily completely disagree with them. Uh, you know, it's about how do we find a balance there between, say, an authoritarian Chinese lockdown, which was uh, brutally effective. You know, this idea that everything is is, is now brutally possible um, opens up um, spaces not just on the right. Uh, you know, um, it, it opens up uh, political spaces which uh, are very uneasy uh, with regards to our liberal kind of uh, uh, current liberal biases. Yeah, uh, this is interesting. The other day, Martin and I we were talking about this, about this notion of the liberal uh, individual and the difference between the Anglo-Saxon uh, paradigm of individual freedom and then uh, if how to achieve notions of solidarity or effectiveness in a crisis like this. Uh, because obviously, I mean, I'm pretty sure both of you uh, notice the differences between approaches like the UK or China, but you don't have to go to China. You can use the example of Spain and extreme measures of uh, lockdown, declaring the state of alert, mandatory use of face masks, etc. 
and then how certain biases, how uh, vulnerable groups are affected differently in places like, for example, China or Spain, or then United States, where obviously the freedom of the so-called uh, liberal individual is to some extent respected, but then uh, the bias is expressed in a much more violent way, if you know what I mean. I don't know if you are following me. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I think it also comes down. I mean, one on the early days of the of the lockdown, I think I'll just even on a sensorial level um, is because I think this this is also uh, you know it's not just a heady moment. It's also a, a it also has a, a visceral side to it, and it was you know coming from a North American context where obviously uh, uh, the the sort of uh, loading of, of rights and responsibilities on an individual on an individual level as a sort of uh, you know base building block of, of how society is imagined um, is, is quite strong and it was basically I guess the first time that in my own uh, life like on a, on a mass scale right where you're participating but you also know it's happening on a mass scale is where you realize that okay we're practicing we're practicing the deprivatized self right now right like you can write about that all the time and, and you can say that like well there's no you know the the the, the, the sort of the individual is always a, a deprivatized entity somehow um, but it was the first time where I really could sense within myself that I felt it you know what I mean um, just because it was like a very acute um, practice where uh, you know your your health and well-being is contingent on on your neighbors and vice versa, um, yeah. and that was that was very and obviously that isn't uh, that wasn't universally <laughs> felt <laughs> obviously <laughs> <laughs> or universally practiced, um, but you know I was also trying to think about things in, in le maybe less uh, less intellectualized way, but just really like what. What were you, you know, in the, in the sort of transformation? Because this has really happened on a very quotidian level, right? Um, and that to me was quite inspiring, and also a, a kind of, like I said, in the early days, uh, a kind of trigger of some hopefulness that something that had maybe been obscured um, from a lot of us uh, was now being put into quotidian practice. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> other than that, like, I mean, and obviously, there's different. Uh, you know, I think the the kind of extremes that you're hinting at are the extreme context where obviously the freedom of the market um, triumphs over uh, the the deprivatized sense of freedom that would keep um, bodies healthy, and in fact, this prioritization of the market. Um, it, it literally sends sacrificial bodies, right? The essential workers, so to speak, um, yeah. to maintain this. Uh, and this is, this is, yeah, one of the most sort of blatant, disgusting um, pieces of evidence we have of this, you know, of this choice, of this prioritizing.
Yes, I think that there has been this explosion of kind of collective organizing at the hyper-local level, uh, not just um, with regards to COVID, but the, the various protest movements and Black Lives Matter. Um, so there's many different worlds coexisting here in terms of what the conditions and experiences of this crisis are. But the other thing that I think Patricia alludes to, which is interesting, is it's just made a lot of ideological concealment very transparent. And if we think about you know, literally sacrificing your elderly population for the gods of the market. What, what, um, um, one expression of kind of um, uh, American capitalism that that looks like. Um, I think that that provides openings or opportunities. Those ideological kind of fissures where you can really um, glean the ideological makeup of a society through these, these cracks that open up in response to crisis provide interesting political opportunities. And I'm not a, uh, actually, I'm not a political pessimist with regards to the effects of the COVID uh, pandemic. Uh, I actually think there's an intricate set of forces that will play out differently in different part, different regions. Some of them may be positive. Um, uh, on the one hand, you're forcing certain kind of ecological realities on a population for the first time en masse in the West, um, which could um, have a positive consciousness, consciousness uh, raising or, or awareness raising long-term effect on um, climate response. On the other hand, we see uh, strongman populists have actually struggled in various parts of the world and flourished in others. With a very uneven narrative that you can't create a global narrative about uh, right-wing populism off the back of COVID. It may well actually end several right-wing populist regimes and in a very quick fashion too. Uh, so um, uh, I've been very wary of global narratives. I don't think there's, there's a lot of micro-regional narratives um, playing out currently and their complexity is quite extraordinary once you start talking to experts in those regions. Mm, no, definitely. Yeah. I think like the this this kind of idea of the um, you know that the ideological concealment now being revealed is also this you know there was this uh, point like I said in, in the thing that's been haunting me all summer is this when you had um, Anil when you had raised in the text this. Uh, this notion of the Barkhand formula, right? The, the, which the possibility of the existence of A implies the existence of the possibility of A. Um, and so, uh, but the, basically it's like, the existence of the possibility A is often obscured. And certain structures are in place, uh, uh, regimes of common sense, etc., etc., that obscure the existence of these possibilities and uh, this crisis, as you as you noticed, as, as you noted, has been, um, you know, maybe for those who are, you know, in academia and so on and are, are, are analyzing these things all the time, this is perhaps obvious, but I think that it's, it's definitely some sort of consciousness raising on a much wider um, spectrum than than previously. So the question is like what, and obviously there's not just the existence of possibility A, there's the existence of multiple possibilities in there. Um, and 
and, and yeah, but I think you're, you're absolutely right that this kind of, um, concealment factor is, uh, has been removed. Right. This is, uh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's fascinating because it's, uh, once again, uh, this hopeful kind of, uh, perspectives, uh, yeah, they, they contrast so much with the conversations that I've been having, but it's extremely refreshing and, and necessary. Um, yeah, because um, because I was thinking of in the, in the discussion of liberalism and the way that, um, once again, because of the ground, is so fragile. Field. fragile, no, I would say. Uh, yeah, it's so it's so fragile, um, and it's very very difficult to to see, yeah, the potential or the possibilities to you know to go forward, and you know like uh, the future is so uncertain that to basically think that. Uh, I just I'm just amazed by you know the potential to think rationally to how to get out of this situation rationally when you know we are in a system that is yeah, you, you know as we know acting in such a irrational way and it's gonna do whatever it can if we saw you know like the thing is that if we saw what happened in the crisis in 2008 and nine, I, to be honest, I was not seeing, you know, a positive, you know, in the long term, maybe, but what I will see at this, or what I will expect in the next years is an even harder type of uh, restructural, economical restructural and disequilibrium, because the people who have the power will try to keep it as much as possible, and people who don't have any ability to you know, they will go under. Um, surely there will be responses to this and there will be a lot of um, uh, political upheaval. Mm-hmm. But um, because of the kind of institutionalization that occurred from the movements from 15M or, you know, on Syriza, you know, to see the limitations or, or, you know, or see the limitations of, you know, the uh, Jeremy Corbyn movement or the Bernie Sanders, to see that those movements have not been able to uh, go very far, uh, it, it just makes it um, very difficult to kind of build, to construct a kind of political possibility for this future, the positive future that you are uh, talking about. Well, we're, we're not talking about... <laughs> We're not talking about necessarily that, like, you know, I, I think it's, it would be, I think we are trying to think about possibility, um, but it's necessarily, okay. uh, I wouldn't describe our text as, like, optimistic. I think it's a little bit... No, 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 now you have to hope for, advocate for fully <laughs> optimist solution. No, but, uh, <laughs> I will, I think even on, a, on, a, on this kind of more, uh, you know, I think there's, like, more of a logical unfolding in the in the essay and in a way you know when you say that our time is so uncertain and uh and obviously it's it's like incredibly risky um 
But you know, like if we only stick to、uh, probable accounts of futurity, obviously we need to be not naive and in a, in a very robust diagnostic space. But if we only commit to probable outcomes of our as an extension of our current moment, then you're, they're actually they're, they are creating certitude in a way. Um, even if it's negative certitude, but at least you're like, oh, it's gonna be shit. Okay, so that's that's <laughs> at least that's some degree of certainty.、Um, but you know, like I think maybe it's also helpful to think about the post 2008 movement in a little bit longer time、um, scale because, like, you have to say, I, I don't even think that a figure like Bernie Sanders plus all of these like. Progressive down ballot, in, you know, very substantial wins you start seeing in, in the United States.、Um, would they have been possible without the,、uh, you know, response to、uh, the 2008 crash? Like, namely, this sort of like Occupy scenario, right, which got criticized and so on and so forth. But nonetheless, it it did raise, a, you know, certain terms started circulating in. Uh, in, a, in a media sphere that were certainly not there when I was、um, <clears throat> a person, a young person growing up in North America.、Um, so it's also a question of, of you know, is it、um, do these like paradigmatic or hegemonic modes of, of operating do they transform overnight, or do they take all of these little like seedlings in order to kind of reach some sort of、uh, you know? Critical impasse, basically.、Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm just being hopelessly optimistic here, but I think that there are certain,、uh, there were certainly gains made、um, that maybe they didn't like win. Let's say, right? None of these people are in power, but I think there, there's some kind of、um, uh, momentum or a transformation that is incrementally going on. Um, and certainly, you, you know, the one word that you raised is that is definitely missing from from our account because it isn't、uh, specifically a political account of this possible world. Is the question of power, right? Is the question of、uh, you know the interest involved in obscuring the possibility of of another world,、um, and that is definitely something that needs to be you know much more robustly thought、uh, because. You know, obviously, our, our political context is not such that you just arrive with a few rational arguments and that's it, right? <laughs> that's not how it works. <laughs> yeah,、uh, I mean, for me, and I think Martin as well、uh, is concerned with this. Is、uh, how difficult it is to think about、uh, not this transformation, change, reaction. That's quite easy, but how to picture. Rational grip in this precise moment, when、uh, this irrational and almost paranoid reactions are so frequent, trying to conceive,、uh, yeah, rational grip influencing these reactions is so difficult for me because the conversations. With Spanish friends, for example, Anila, I'm pretty sure as well, he's aware. So the in the history of Spain, never the far right had this、um, 
presence in the parliament and using the face masks these days a lot of people that never expressed their far right uh, inclinations now they are using these face masks of box with the flag of Spain a lot of discussions and arguments in bars about the yeah the the kind of uh, management of the crisis from the coalition between the Socialist Party and Podemos. It's like the, the, the tension between this irrational grip and the continuous horizon that is like evolving and creating these certainties that you were mentioning, Patricia. It's like that seems that leaves no room for this rational grip unless you take this option that Anil was mentioning of a kind of technocratic management of the future. Yes, I should probably clarify as well that, uh, you know, when I talk about rationality in politics, we have to distinguish between political strategy and political policy. Now, strategy... Uh, is generally not oriented, it's not grounded in kind of rationalist principles because human behavior is largely, uh, certainly at uh, the level of populations, does not follow rational principles. So I'm not saying that we have to insist on yet more rational deliberation at all phases of the political process and will magically kind of arrive at some kind of perfect balance between expertise and uh, democratic ideals. Uh, quite the opposite. I think their political strategy, um, I've been a proponent of various left uh, populist strategies, including aspects of Podemos' strategy, which are quite populist, not uh, result of rational deliberation in terms of their communications, but appealing to uh, quite base uh, kind of ideas or tendencies. Um, uh, around maybe justice or fairness or, or, or an enemy or the construction of an enemy, which is another key pillar of populist politics. I'm actually very much advocate for the left to use these uh, strategies. Um, at the level of policy, though, um, policy has to be coherent along some kind of socialist axis, right? And that's the, le at the level which you can um, make cases for policy, um, not because a policy is going to win or lose based on those cases, but because uh, on some level you have to be able to articulate a future in order to create a trajectory that has some kind of sustainability. You need a self-sustaining uh, 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 system, and that at that level you have to start articulating a little bit. Now, one of the great uh, potencies of capital is that it, uh, it doesn't have to explicitly articulate in that way. You know, the right wing... Uh, you know, everyone talks about right-wing unity and, and left-wing fragmentation. Right-wing unity doesn't come because they've all agreed on a bunch of ideological principles explicitly and because they've debated them to death and decided they all agree. Not at all. It's based on a completely tacit um, assumption that um, there are a set of capitalist relations that they want to preserve, and um, it's rather implicit ideologically. The explicit kind of uh, cracks that you see every few decades, like say um, the neoliberal school of economics, where they actually provide explicit models, are an exception. On the whole, um, 
it's a structure-preserving conservative infrastructure that relies on tacit assumption that um, we want to perpetuate the system, which is very good at perpetuating itself as well, obviously. So the left and the right have completely different approaches to uh, to 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 the practice of politics, and I'm quite in favour of the left actually adopting uh, some of the populism. Um, but uh, the other the other thing that came up there, which I think was quite interesting, was when you mentioned Spain. And um, what I like, I actually quite like some of these right wing reactions because it shows that they feel threatened in a way. In the case of Spain. The right wing is actually slightly marginalized at the moment. It's not like it has complete control over the country. It has to negotiate with uh, uh, the political parties in power. Uh, but in that sense, I don't mind seeing my enemy feel threatened. Uh, that's absolutely fine. I think Spanish politics is probably in a healthier state than it was 10 years ago, 15 years ago even, maybe. Um, so I don't think we should panic our reactions. Um, it, I, I really do feel like the political is possible in a way it wasn't pre-2008. The political as such is possible. And I think that we have, you know, personally, my relation to indeterminacy is very open. And I think that's conditioned by some of these things we've been talking about, like uh, the computational perspective or the kind of actualism, which Patricia was talking about earlier. And Western liberals, because they've been, their ideology has basically been hegemonic, uh, have been scrambling since Trump was put into power and haven't stopped scrambling, essentially. They've been scrambling now for two or three years because they can't deal with this uh, rupture of their worldview, this indeterminacy. But I think an openness to indeterminacy is absolutely key uh, for any kind of uh, left-wing kind of project, of course. I think for me the question would be uh, what, under what assumptions will this left-wing project be? Um, you know, like what kind of things will it take for granted? You know, social democratic terms, trying to go to the welfare state, which is what so far we have seen, or will it try to propose something more ambitious? Which uh, I, that's why I feel so attracted by by your text that is ambitious that it tries to show you know um, you know you know in, in this realm of you know a theoretical text with the diagram but it's, it's, it has a level of ambition that I, I find very appealing and that level of ambition I haven't seen you know for example it was present in the acceler left accelerationism but it toned down uh, very quickly, and then the right-wing acceleration just really grew, has been growing up radically to points that are very scary. And I think it has to do, I, I think for me, uh, the problem of um, left accelerationism is that it kind of took for granted, perhaps, uh, it didn't really think through the IMWI relationship uh, that it will go beyond what the liberal democratic kind of option was, that it didn't present itself, it didn't think through. Instead, uh, you know, the, the right-wing libertarians just went with the hardcore libertarians, and then here is where you see a kind of uh, 
full on like the government we don't need the government we just we can just be you know independent autonomous you know entities that can just accelerate you know the process of whatever you know they want to you know get but the, the, the so the, so the question of under what assumptions will this left um, uh, project if we want to call it that way would be and I think your distinction was crucial I think I, I really found very uh, interesting the distinction between political strategy not necessarily based on rationality and maybe here power is where because I was trying to think what does power mean and we had um, this conversation with Alex Williams and I we, ne we never got an answer you know he's very you know influenced by Gramsci and I think maybe here there's a connection to the Lockwood populisms but when I think of power in the Foucaultian version is something extremely elusive certainly not Marxist and then thinking in the way that in the end of his career he even defended the new philosophers which they were very conservative um, so okay is it power a kind of um, working it means you know it's connected to perhaps this non-rational way of dealing with the strategy at the level of uh, you know collective organization what, what you know what do we mean power and you know and the question that i tried to pose before is under what assumptions would this political left project be well uh i mean i think obviously this is like a quite it's like an incredibly difficult question to answer but i think um one thing that i think needs to be emphasized <clears throat> And, and sort of like put in contradistinction to uh, at least when you speak about left acceleration, I just assume you mentioned the man, you mean the manifesto mainly, maybe not the more elaborated um, practical projects, but um, one, one, you know, one huge factor for me that was uh, in that, in that work, you know, and, and it's been a long, it's been several years since that, that came out was um, the demonization of, of the local uh, and, and basically arguing for, like obviously there needs to be this re return of ambition to the left again, there's the problem of scale, the crises we face, etc., etc. but that the local had to be almost demonized in order to, so it was like you had to give up the local to, to get at the, these bigger, more ambitious things. And I think that was a, I think that was a misstep, um, both strategically and also um, and, and also philosophically, um, because I think again, if we're going to be speaking about any sort of scale, we don't even have to evoke the loaded term of universalism. But if we're just going to be talking about scale, we have to be, you know, I think we have to go from the particular up, basically, um, and that's precisely what you know we were trying to do in our in within a computational logical framework in, in the text that we that we wrote um, so basically uh, one one needs to be able to submit um, ideas and concepts through multiple uh, dimensions um, including the local because that is precisely the place where interactions happen right I was just re-looking at some of 
you know, this is in a way there's even some resonance with this like molecular principle of, of Guattari, right? That like if you really want substantial change, it has to even it really has to occur on a molecular level to be effective, right? Um, and one thing that it, for me is seems to be quite crucial uh, is that if if there had to be this one assumption, let's say, which is obviously a uh, <laughs> also a loaded word is what are the modes of access to complexity? Um, and the reason why I, that I suggest that is I remember being at a, at a talk where, or I saw a talk online where uh, I think it was the programmer and designer Ben Servany talking and he was basically saying like, yeah, basically today uh, the only entities with access to complexity are these major institutions like banking, risk management firms, etc. So basically there's these gatekeeping institutions that normal people like ourselves don't have access to that degree of, of, of means uh, to access the, yeah, this kind of intricate, um, complex picture of, of things in relation to other things, right? This sort of topological picture we're, we're working from. Um, and so one you know, what would be, you know, what would be ways to access this? Because at the moment, it strikes me that what's really, what wins out in a lot of times is also the like hyper simplification narrative, right? Like, <laughs> and to me, that's just not going to cut it. Um, and maybe this is also a question of like, and I'll mention the question of a difference between policy and strategy that one would have to, um, you know, you can't really sell, <laughs> you can't really make complexity sexy or something, um, but it's definitely got to be factoring into how we imagine politics um, in, a, in a world that has a multiplicity of worlds within it, a multiplicity of, of locales within it, with varying degrees of acuteness of, of crisis, but those crises are uh, are all kind of connected somehow. So how do we understand and develop a politics that can be amenable to that, um, which of course has even the derivative structural consequence that they're not locatable within a nation state either. Um, so yeah, uh, that's, these would be my first sort of like attempts at <laughs> gesturing to your, your question. Yeah, I would, I would add a couple of things there. I think that you raised some really good questions. This idea of mode of access to complexity. We think through that idea, uh, what are the sites of complexity, key sites of complexity in our modern political economy? We can think about markets as a key kind of battleground for uh, refiguring or reimagining uh, our future politics. So the first thing I would insist on any kind of... Um, uh, alternative uh, political project is that it has an adequate um, vision for what a market uh, should be. And uh, it, it needs to have actually explicit ideas around how markets should be designed uh, uh, as, as a technical artifact. Uh, a market is a system that uh, can be uh, quite plastic and can embody uh, a range of different uh, political theories. Now, there's a lot of work in heterodox economics on this, uh, Murawski, for example. But I think that that's a really key site. So what we're seeing about 
complexity today, we could say it's increasingly locating itself uh, on platforms of some sort. If we want to take a platform political uh, view of um, recent trends, shall we say, in the political economy, we could say that the idea of the market has been subsumed by this other concept, which is the platform. And if we look at that kind of resonance between uh, right accelerationism and uh, computationalism, you think of figures like uh, Peter Thiel, they are very explicit in articulating what a market should be under the right accelerationist model, right? So Thiel explicitly says markets should be private. Actually, the state should have uh, no access to the market at all. Uh, we should abandon Adam Smith uh, entirely, and we should completely annihilate the idea of free markets from our future political economy, um, insisting on a market as a kind of private platform, uh, which is completely owned by some kind of centralized actor. And you can have a complete plurality of markets, but any individual market is a monopoly. So what we have is uh, essentially families of, of private markets under that right accelerationist model. Now you really need an alternative view of what a socialist market uh, looks like, and you actually need to do uh, some of the technical work of, uh, of modeling it uh, and trying to convince, uh, uh, you know, have some kind of convincing argument as to why or how that could work. You need actual procedures, operations, and mechanisms. What kind of actors can uh, participate in markets? You know, and we have a market which excludes um, joint stock corporations, for example, what would that look like? Uh, what would entry to that market um, entail? Um, what uh, forms of organization should be allowed to exchange on that market? Um, uh, who's allowed to own those organizations? So I'm very much in favor of um, forms of what you might call market socialism that really try to think through these ideas. What do you think about um, the the function of price in that in that scenario, Anil? Because I know, like, obviously, there's the whole kind of talk of the inefficiency of of you know existing private markets as they are to uh, uh, you know adequately determine price that is actually reflective of you know negative externalities, all these sorts of things. Um, yes. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's a really good point because we're talking about indeterminacy in, our, in politics. You know, the sites of complexity are also sites of indeterminacy. And one thing we've learned is that capitalism has a woefully inadequate um, kind of treatment of uh, complexity. It's essentially um, uh, inadvertently annihilating the context for its sustainability due to its inability to price. And its inability to price is so uh, endemic that the entire system would fall apart as soon as you start to introduce ecological complexity into the capitalist model. And it's it's kind of consciously pushed out so much complexity for so long, in fact, most of the complexity on the planet, it's externalized it for so long that the system is uh, certainly going to collapse, not, not possibly going to collapse. And... The key challenge for uh, for the kind of capacity of capitalism to sustain itself will be to uh, completely re redesign itself uh, around ideas of complexity. Now, I don't think it has it um, 
in itself to do that at all. I think it's completely inadequate as a system. It's Of course, we always talk on the left about how adaptive capitalism is, but actually, uh, it's I think it's actually completely the opposite. I think it's a it's actually far too rigid to survive uh, this historical period. Um, uh, you can't annihilate 30% of the life forms of the planet, suck the resources at the current rate, at anywhere near the current rate, to have a sustainable economic system. So um, in a sense, that's why right accelerationism is such an easy sell. You know, it plays to completely uh, natural nihilistic ideas about the future of this project, which I, you know, I completely agree with. Um, um, but the question is, um, uh, you know, you can take that nihilism all the way to a cosmic level and it's still completely defensible, I think, as a contemporary position. You can take it all the way to kind of raise kind of cosmic level and, and talk about extinction. But um, to do so is to completely abdicate the responsibility to try and construct something. You know, if you want to abdicate all your creative responsibility, there's really no reason uh, to be alive as a, as a concept-bearing kind of mammal, right? So you have to have a reason to, to bother. Uh, yes, you could wake up in the morning and just play computer games, and actually that's what most right accelerations do. But um, <laughs> you have to ask for something more of yourself if you want to have a creative life. And I think that's the origin of trying to come up with um, um, uh, an appeal to complexity, which uh, goes far beyond uh, kind of the richness that capitalism has given us um, with regards to exchange and uh, creation of information. And we really have to push that further. The you know, markets are information-creating uh, technical systems, and, and we really need to push them a lot further than we have today. I need to ask you something because I think it would be helpful for us uh, uh, for the audience when you talk about the appeal for complexity and you talk about indeterminacy in this context I would love to hear uh, your differentiation between indeterminacy in this context and uncertainty because I think it's quite crucial for the way in which we uh, picture complexity and how, I don't know, chaotic systems evolve and how we think about determinacy and indeterminacy in this context. So what kind of difference um, do you pose between uncertainty and indeterminacy when you talk about this? Right, yeah, that's interesting. So. In the sense that I invoke it, indeterminacy is, is closer to pure contingency. So, um, uh, uncertainty can have more of a probabilistic uh, uh, or statistical um, interpretation, but it's a less uh, precise concept. It can, it can be used slightly differently in different contexts, uncertainty. Indeterminacy generally does mean uh, some kind of irreducible contingency in the manner in which I'm implying it. And it um, kind of um, um, differs from ideas like uh, algorithmic randomness or ideas of randomness which can have an algorithmic treatment, so yeah. Martin Love randomness. 
it uh, differs from other ideas like um, you know undecidability is a particular kind of symptom of indeterminacy what I would call the indeterminacy of the real um, so that's the computational interpretation of indeterminacy is this symptom which we call undecidability in computation which is to do with processes so it's a kind of process perspective on indeterminacy um, but yeah the, the kind of indeterminacy I'm talking about there is actually what what someone like uh, Elia Yache would call pure contingency or absolute contingency in the vocabulary Mayazu. And um, there is a computationist um, treatment of this. It's in the um, intuitionistic physics of Nicholas Gissin, who's a, who's a physicist who's tried to sketch out uh, this indeterminacy uh, in the realm of physics um, and how it can be compatible uh, with ideas uh, from computational theory. Because we think of computation as very deterministic. Yeah, that's my point, because maybe this is a huge digression, but um, while you were talking, I was thinking about uh, Reza's book as another book that I think Matin and I thought, okay, this is something that we should consider for the construction of the immediate future of philosophy, etc. But this transcendental computationalist picture that Reza provides, I'm not sure to which extent he considers the possibility of undeterminacy as such. An ontological perspective on, of indeterminacy. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because you are talking about something that has um, a kind of attribution that goes beyond the epistemic probabilistic level yes. of uncertainty. Yes, exactly. And I think uh, the kind of computationism we have in the essay is quite different to Reza's because it's not yeah. really transcendental in, the, in, in an ontological sense. It's transcendental epistemically. It's the kind of Trinitarianism whereby computation becomes a kind of envelope or what uh, you would call a transcendental operator. But it's transcendental only in the epistemic realm. So it's a kind of way of looking at um, a way of encoding logic and mathematics into language so that it's an envelope for these three forms, logic, mathematics, and language. Um, but we don't, uh, we actually are proposing quite a, a imminentist uh, perspective overall at the ontological level in terms of imminent procedures, which is um, the characterization of computation that we use. Um, whereas, whereas with Res, obviously, it's more uh, ontological. But I'm, I'm more interested in um, uh, the kind of uh, quite physicalist account that, that the, the physicist like Jason puts together there. And I think you're right, the treatment of indeterminacy is maybe, maybe insufficient because it's, um, it's a huge obstacle to trying to give a computationalist account of time. And I think that's the yeah. key thing which uh, I think is, it is a key factor that's missing, I think, in Reza's text. He doesn't give a convincing computationist account of time. And there's quite a lot of work you actually have to do there. Uh, which Jason and others try and do, um, to forge that indeterminate uh, view of time, uh, pretty radically indeterminate, uh, which nevertheless um, allows for an epistemically prominent role for, for computation regardless. Because if, if you are a lazy reader, you could argue, okay, uh, Reza is 
cancelling the idea of time as a kind of transcendental illusion. So he has a sort of fatalistic prognosis of the future, as we could see in the recent months regarding COVID-19, precisely because he's cancelling the very idea of contingency in the way in which future is constructing itself, if you know what I mean. He's arguing for a very Parmenidian picture of the world at the end. But if you argue for a sort of, I mean, we won't go deep into the different forms of uh, indecibility or indeterminacy, you are arguing for some sort of radical contingency that no. it's a construction of the horizon, if you know what I mean. It's not an static picture. Yes, and, and there my, is hope precisely because of that construction. Yes, yes, and, and my my assertion is also just is that that is where a computationalist view of time would necessarily take you. So that's a very computationist idea, which is not intuitive. This idea of radical indeterminacy introduced by time. I don't even think computation can exist without time. I think computation is an intrinsically temporal concept, um, and it's completely and utterly tethered to temporal logics. And um, you can obviously have a temporal logics, and, and, and there are many, but um, they're not compatible with a full computationist uh, view of, say, physics uh, or of the real. And um, this is a rather new idea. I think um, earlier forms of universal computationism were rather deterministic. They just uh, uh, appeal to a kind of faith in the digital based on a kind of intuition that you can't have infinity everywhere in a universe. That's just not physically practical if you think information is real. Um, but these, the, this kind of new uh, argument is rather more sophisticated that arrives at an inter indeterminate view of time. And Jissin uh, makes a convincing argument that you cannot do intuitionistic logic without this conception of time, and that computation as a result um, doesn't really cohere as a concept um, uh, without this, this notion of time. So, in more concrete terms, um, how do you see the role of uh, artificial intelligence? Uh, and especially, I guess I'm just like now getting to the question that we wanted to address, which is like, what do you think about the emergence of the GPT-3? And, you know, what is it a game changer? Uh, how it will kind of possibly influence uh, the issues that we were talking uh, previously about uh, a kind of the, about the needs of the political to deal or the political left to be able to deal with access to complexity and so on. Yeah, I will have to defer to, to Anil on this point because uh, like I said, I've, I've only been following it a little bit vaguely just in the popular media, so I have no uh, no uh, right to speak on this topic whatsoever. Like us, like Martin and I. But. <laughs> yeah, but I'm not gonna, I mean, yeah, it's not something that's been, um, let's say, uh, prioritized in my... In my yeah, but I mean, I am pretty sure you have your opinion as well. And even though Anil can enlighten us a little bit 
uh, more and with more rigor. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe just to add one small thing about this kind of question of indeterminacy. Uh, yes. Please. And, and certainly, just to like wrap up, because maybe it feeds into this, is that I think one thing our essay also does is like um, it, it also doesn't get into like um, possibility idealism, if you know what I mean, or possibility fetishism. That like because the whole idea of um, of of, the, of submitting concepts and objects. Um, to multiple dimensions of existence uh, is precisely to, um, uh, you know, see that there are constraints on possibility. And that's certainly something that, uh, in terms of what's realizable, and that's certainly something that happens in, in discourses on technology, where, I mean, any kind of technical object is both determinate Uh, because of its protological and material substrates, but also indeterminate. So it's just, it's also, um, I think both of these properties are are inherent to a technical object, including, you know, um, an AI system. Um, and so, yeah, and so just, just to kind of point that out, that I think one needs to be able to analyze it in this way, whilst recognizing that Uh, these possibilities aren't infinite either, um, and yeah, that, that, that these are kind of necessary constraints, I suppose, imposed based on the medium of, of its existence. Hello. Yes, I think, I think this, this idea of constraints of the possible is quite, is quite an interesting um, segue into AI as well. If we look at machine learning in the, in the last, say, decade, as it's grown in influence politically, socially, culturally, it really has been the automation of institutional bias. That's essentially what it's been doing. It's been um, replacing a lot of uh, decision-making, um, but essentially propagating uh, existing biases uh, that are held by various kinds of institutions, corporate, state actors, individuals. Um, what we're seeing maybe is it's entering maybe a new phase uh, at the moment, both in terms of the impact it's having, because these same systems are just being operationalized in more and more brutal and ambitious ways as capital seeks to uh, automate more and more of its operations because it can't um, you know, accommodate labor or, uh, or um, yeah, largely it cannot accommodate uh, actual labor rights. Um, I mean, we've seen this week, for example, the first protest, uh, not the first, but probably the third major protest against an algorithm uh, on the streets of the UK, which I'm sure uh, Miguel, you'll be familiar with, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. students chanting, fuck the algorithm, over and over again, which is a kind of, uh, probably a rebellious slogan for our age now. And so there's this sense that AI is obviously just accelerating Uh, various modes of capital, which is certainly true for the most part. But our discursive interest in it, both Patricia and mine, I think, is that it's it's a critical project for a broader idea of inhumanism of some of some sort, right? As a as a critical project for the reevaluation of the human. Now, but you want you you have to continuously um, realign the advances, the technical advances of machine learning. Um, in the service of this project as an outsider because the 
technical capacities, the industry not invested in, you know, dismantling Western liberal humanism, obviously. But nevertheless, it's a critical project. It's one amongst many. Um, uh, and it's actually very telling when for certain theorists in humanism just means AI and technology or robots. It's obviously not just that. Um, but what we've been seeing more recently is with these language models is that no longer is this a kind of constraint on the future, which are, you know, these predictive algorithms which has been applying institutional constraints in more and more brutal, way, um, brutal ways. But uh, with GPT-3, we see a slight, uh, a potential uh, glimpse at um, other modes of reasoning, essentially, that can um, emerge from these systems. When I say other modes of reasoning, I mean not just um, uh, statistical acts of prediction or classification, um, which is roughly what we've seen to date. Uh, we might uh, enumerate some of these other modes of reasoning. So we have, for example, analogical reasoning, which GPT-3 GPT is showing some uh, adequacy in. Uh, we have, uh, we have uh, counterfactual reasoning, which it hasn't been sufficiently tested for, uh, counterfactual robustness of its concepts. We have, um, uh, we have uh, creative modes of writing, which is obviously able to do via very sophisticated uh, forms of paraphrasing almost, uh, but um, there is some notion of generativity and creativity in there. And then we have things like modal or deontic uh, forms of reasoning, which we can expect it to, to, to kind of lack in various ways. You wouldn't necessarily expect it to have any notion of uh, how the world should be. Uh, uh, or how the world ought to be, or any ethics. But what's been interesting with GPT-3 is how it has been rolled out by industry through OpenAI. It hasn't. Re we haven't really been able to submit it to rigorous experiments. So scientists, it hasn't been a purely scientific process, and I think we could benefit from um, uh, more academic uh, involvement because I would want to see experiments rigorously testing for these forms of reasoning and. Uh, we've seen some computer scientists do some informal testing, but that's it. Now, with an experiment with AI, it also has to take into account the data that is fed into the AI, which in the case of GPT-3, um, something like 45 terabytes of text, primarily web pages. Obviously, also a lot of books from the Google Books project and a lot of research papers, but actually, um, far and away, the most uh, predominant form of text is web page. Now, obviously, web pages are a mess, and there's a lot of questions as to uh, how exactly that was cleaned up. Um, but when we look at that training data, we say, what can this really tell us? If you are a cognitive neuroscientist, this is probably a completely null experiment in reasoning. Right? It doesn't mimic um, human exposure or experience in any way, shape, or form. It's read more than any of us could as a community in our lifetimes. Um, so there's very real questions as to what it actually tells us in computational linguistics, in cognitive neuroscience, it may be of limited use, but I think what we'll see next is slightly more scientific experimentation on these systems start to finish. The problem is it takes like 10 to 20 million dollars to train with them. So not many academic institutions are going to commit to that uh, off their own back very lightly. So at the moment, it's also an expression of the ascendancy of the American technology industry and the kind of 
battlefield uh, that we'll see nation states get more and more involved in at the state level. And we saw, actually, Miguel, I don't know if you noticed this, uh, Dominic Cummings on his first yeah. day in office is wearing an open AI t Yeah, absolutely. We were talking about this, Martin, and uh, it's <laughs> obvious. Yeah, yeah, so we're about to enter, uh, we, we're obviously deep into the phase of international politics around data, data acquisition, privacy, Huawei, all these kind of uh, battles. But I think that AI will be the next major site or battleground for international politics. The next new site, should we say. Yeah. <laughs> 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 because this guy is infuriating. It's like, it's a, I don't know what to think. It's incredible. So generally, I mean, I'm quite encouraged. UG3 is an impressive language model. The other major break there was that it can learn pretty quickly a whole range of tasks, so its generalization ability is very strong. It only requires a few examples and it can pick up a new, t new linguistic task. And um, that's a major kind of breakthrough, what is done with so-called few-shot learning. Can I ask you a question, Anil? Because sure. you know a lot about how the systems work. Because, um, would I be right to presume that the data sets for these, uh, for these trainings are all in English at the moment? Or have they been expanded? Or is it like a multilingual project? I mean, multilingual language models exist. Obviously, we have Google Translate as an example. Um, but GPT-3, I believe, is, is English. Um, now, I don't, there's a, there's a very interesting question in, in linguistics there, you know, to what extent can a model of that size accommodate multiple languages, you know, what is, what are the scaling requirements of divergent uh, grammatical, not just uh, grammatical, but also semantic structures, the semantics um, aren't equivalent necessarily. But I, I have to say that I've seen a demo in which a guy uh, was having a chat uh, with the bot. Uh, he was saying, uh, if you are Portuguese and I ask you, what's the weather forecast for tomorrow? What would be your answer? And uh, GPT-3 was answering in Portuguese, so without problems, yeah. Yeah. And I guess it also translating like uh, uh, computational languages, right? I mean, we can, it can produce code for Python, yeah. using certain... Yeah, certainly it has a, a capacity for formal languages. Uh, I imagine its translational capacity might be limited. It's often you have to do very specific things for a translation model, uh, architecturally. I haven't actually seen an experiment as to its translation capacity, but Google has a bunch of parallel models, and I, they haven't advertised as to whether GPT-3 is going to be kind of integrated into their translation models. Hmm. And you think it can be like a way of uh, popularize complexity? I mean, can it, be, can it work? Can it do some of the work that we do were talking in regards to the left populism, you know, but in regards to, you know, how we deal with complexity or is that too far-fetched kind of association? Yeah, this stage maybe not. I think the kind of it's obviously going to raise 
uh, a bunch of awareness about different aspects of, of human behavior, but with regards to grasp on complexity, I think um, AI is a vector, obviously, for understanding um, uh, intelligence in the plural or divergences, uh, divergences and modes of intelligence. So complexity in that sense, you know, one way of interpreting the AI project is that it's a kind of explosion of, uh, of intelligence. So we could, we could have uh, down the line um, uh, a much more parochial view of human intelligence and then domain-specific intelligences that completely outstrip our thinking within certain domains, right? Um, so there's that sense of complexity as a, as a kind of explosion of, of intelligence. Um, but that's down the line rather than present-day GPT-3 context. The thing with GPT-3 is that it, it has the capacity to be quite explosive at the level of uh, what we regard as human communication. Because obviously, every step of the way, humans will want to um, distinguish themselves from AI. And um, that's going to become increasingly difficult. Uh, I think it's what GPT-3 is showing us. So, text-based media is going to be severely impacted over the next 20 years, would be my Myself. Yeah, they were saying that, for example, these kind of standardized news outlets will be the first replaced by yeah, product output of GPT-3. No? Well, this, it's interesting because all of it, you know, associated press or something like this, it's all about verification. Like yeah, the work done there is about trying to work out what happened in, in the real. So the actual writing is, is minor. Um, so I'm not sure about that. Um, I think, but I think certainly a lot of, say, marketing. Marketing has a huge text-based component now. You could say about half of all online text is marketing-related at this point, and I think there'll be huge impacts there on copywriting. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's my, my mistake because I was not talking precisely about news, like relevant news regarding, for example the new information about the explosion in Beirut or something like that. I am talking about these silly articles that some generalistic newspapers have about the last 10 fashion trends in whatever. So it's easy to ask GPT-3 to write me an article about the 10 horror movies you never watch uh, you know what I mean yeah I mean I don't think anyone is going to shed a tear for the demise of clickbait yeah people you know there's a very real psychological aspect here where people may not want to consume content that they think has been written by one of these apart from um, in certain narrow contexts but in general that may be a turn off for readers um uh in the same but, way, something like the spectacle of uh, football in Europe is now increasingly some kind of technical system. We're removing more and more humans from it. There's not even a crowd anymore. And viewing figures are already dropping hugely, even though everyone is at home. Um, yeah. Because the involvement of the human factor is just declining and declining. But I wouldn't necessarily... I like these vectors. You know, It could completely destroy social media as we know it. 
Um, again, something I'm very much in favor of. Um, so I think it could be actually a very interesting disruptive factor. Mm. And what do you think, as you are both involved in the contemporary art realm, do you, are you excited also about the prospect of how it can be used or where, it, when, you know, when, you know, the artist can be, you know, just uh, a process of artificial intelligence? I don't know if your thoughts on that. I don't, to be honest, I have not, I have not reflected on that in, in this time. I, I, I have to say I've been preoccupied with some other questions uh, uh, that are, that are not art related, uh, especially in the last six months. Um, I mean, I think with, you know, the, always the trick with these, I guess the, um, whenever you get this again, introduction of, of this kind of novel uh, mediums, if you want, um, I think in, if I can generalize, I think the most successful, let's say, artworks that can emerge from them are usually ones that start by having a fairly robust grasp of the inner workings and therefore can really treat it as, as, a, as a, you know, as a medium. <laughs> and, and, uh, and not just sort of like fall into some kind of gimmickry, right? Of like, oh, look, I can make an object turn in 3D or something, you know what I mean? Um, so, but I, I really haven't been, uh, it hasn't been a priority for, in, in my, uh, in my mind, um, of late. Fair enough. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I've been yeah, I mean, I would, I would echo that, that, I mean, I think the only, the good AI work that's come out, uh, in the art context has been rather conceptual. Uh, on the whole, because the aesthetics are rather problematic, obviously, you know, these generative adversarial networks uh, broke onto the cultural scene with these like kitschy psychedelic aesthetics of these kind of dogs. Um, uh, and then we've had a whole period of kind of um, GAN imaging, essentially very ro low resolution imaging. Um, so I don't think the aesthetics have really gone off the ground yet, which is why the conceptual work has been more compelling. Um, but there's been some uh, interesting linguistics works, I think, and that's going to be a really interesting area for artists. Yeah. The question is, there's a question around access. OpenAI have probably rightly been quite guarded about who can access the model to date. Um, and I think... Uh, you know, the, the, these are going to be centralized models, um, and there's a lot of questions as to, you know, your average artist, when this explosion of access to AI is going to happen, because there's going to be a lot of corporate warfare first, like, is my general sense. OpenAI is a little bit of a misnomer, because they kind of actively admit their ethicists will force them to not open their AI. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the name is rather misleading and they give a lot of ethical arguments. <laughs> For making the kind of progress they are, I can see, obviously, Google at once coming in to be quite guarded 